You are listening to the Legal Design Podcast. My name is Nina Toivonen. And I am Henna Tolvanen. This is legal talk out of the box. And today we really mean out of the box. Our guest is an urban designer, Sin Cosetti. And at least in my personal legal bubble, urban planning doesn't come out so often when discussing about law. Shin is an assistant professor at the University of Montreal. Welcome to our show. Thanks for joining us, Shin. How would you introduce yourself to our listeners? Uh, how would I introduce myself to the listeners? Well, as you know, as Hannah said, I'm an assistant professor and urban designer at the University of Montreal. I'm actually also the director of the UNESCO Chair for Urban Landscape at the University of Montreal. Um, you know, I was trained as an architect, uh, urban planner, and urban designer, mostly in Canada and then in Switzerland. And I, I worked and lived a bit in New York and Rome. Um, and I did my PhD in Switzerland before moving here, uh, moving back to Montreal uh, a few months ago. Wow. Um, how did you become an urban designer? And um, if you want to tell a bit about that, like what what made you choose this path as a career? Right. <laughs> so, I mean, I always liked, um, you know, I always liked cities and moving in cities and traveling to cities and like like many urban designers, I was, as I said, right, initially trained uh, trained in architecture, and um, and then, you know, I think I really liked design and architecture, but for me, it was missing some of the more social and political urgency that I could feel when I was in the city. So I, I became I became interested in the more kind of social dimension of um, you know the built environment and you know the way that we. You know, share a public space, for example, public uh, transportation. And um, so in my studies, I actually took all the social, so, social science classes that I was allowed to, so economics and sociology and geography and so on, right? And then for my master's project, I studied the role of economic and moral values in shaping um, the urban development of lower Manhattan. And for this, I was mostly looking at models of spatial economics and regional studies um, as a way to explain economic and social segregation. Then I did my PhD on the effect of urbanization on political and moral values in Switzerland uh, as the way they are reflected in the Swiss direct democratic system. And through this work and recent research, uh, I got interested in what we call democratic assemblies. And with colleagues, we've worked on the notion of spatial justice and the relationship it has with urban design and policymaking. Okay. Shin, we don't often talk about urban design in law. So let's start with the basics. Could you tell us what urban design is all about and what would be a typical project for urban designing? And how often your projects have something to do with law or justice? So people are not often so conscious about what urban design is, but that's simply because it's basically all around us, like everywhere. It's where architecture, urban planning, and policymaking interact with the real, the real world, basically. So Urban designers typically would conceive public space or street systems, but also transportation infrastructure, energy infrastructure, 
uh, landscape and we do a lot of regulation and policymaking. And this takes up a different meaning in different countries, of course, right? Uh, because different places have different views on what urban design is and what it should be. But it has evolved also very quickly in the last few years. And I would say that the way that we treat urban design now dates back more or less uh, from the 1950s, 1960s. But let's say that the most typical project for an urban designer would be to conceive a public space system or a public space like a square or park. And um, this park is not just pavement, lamps and trees. I mean, there's more to it, right? Uh, there's a lot of thinking going on into making sure that these spaces work and that the people enjoy them, that you know, they make sense with what's already existing in the surrounding uh, in terms of buildings, but also in terms of the local communities and populations that will be using this space. And one of the important concerns that we have now with urban design and urban planning is how we can reduce um, the carbon footprint in cities through this process. And how also how we can boost um, economic activities and attract more, um, more citizens, more people in, uh, to live in cities. So naturally, we always work with law and regulation. It's like a big constraint, of course, in urban design. Um, but we also work with more abstract notions of justice, equity, and accountability. And um, what we try to do mostly is we try to create spatial values that can be then converted into like aesthetics, politics, moral, and economic values. So um, as this is a legal design podcast, we are, of course, interested in the intersection between urban designing or urban planning and promoting justice and obedience of the law. So do you think can, can urban planning or urban design uh, promote democracy and justice? And can it be used to design more democratic societies? And can it, for example, prevent the dissatisfaction for society? And how, how, how do you do that if it's possible? Right. So cities, in a sense, right, have always been the seat of democracy and justice. Historically, I mean, and um, that somehow acted uh, as the counterpart to most authoritarian regimes uh, by affording certain liberties, uh, which are either legal or moral and intellectual freedom. And this is because cities have this great quality that we call anonymity, which allows the same person to actually have multiple lives within the same day. And and that's something that is actually not possible. So anonymity is not possible in traditional rural communities. And today it's being threatened by new technologies like uh, facial recognition and tracking devices. So um, in my sense, making cities does promote democracy. And um, here I'm, I'm speaking mostly of cities in the social Term. You know, places like Versailles or Brasilia or Las Vegas, uh, they were not meant to be cities. Um, you know, for a long time, they were just meant to be like the accumulation of material um, to hold a certain type of, of community together. And they didn't allow for, for any anonymity. Today, of course, um, because of tourism and urban development, these places turned into like city-like places. 
but uh, again, they were not conceived as cities, but, but mostly as monuments. So I would say, yes, urban planning can surely be used to make um, society more democratic and just if their design focus on what cities are. But that can also create less democratic societies when, um, when the proposed urban environment tries to mimic cities aesthetic and function, but does not focus on what is um, the city's essence. And in the 20th century, we saw that most totalitarian regimes were actually against city and city life. Mm. They tried to emulate a form of uh, what we call neo-ruralism, which promoted the idea that cities were actually corrupt and dirty. And of course, this came from feelings of hate, you know, hate against foreigners, hate against LGBT people, hate against people of color, hate against migrants, hate against working class, hate against feminist women, who all happened to live more or less in cities and city centers. So yes, I do believe that part of societies can be dissatisfied, right? And that urban planning can perhaps uh, also be responsible for this. Um, one part because these, you know, people see projects that try to mimic cities, but that aren't. And the other part because they see projects that are cities and to them cities represent something that they think is morally wrong. So in order to prevent the dissatisfaction of society with urban planning, as you say, um, I think we need to show people how cities are actually the most single, most important invention of humankind. Mm. And today we see that places in which women rights, migrant rights, LGBTQ rights are higher, they're in general, uh, they have a general liking of cities and they are often, you know, cities themselves. Um, what do you think, did urban planning prevent crime? I mean, is it possible to design societies and neighborhoods in a way that there won't be bad neighborhoods and gangs and that way influence on the crime rate? Many may remember the broken windows theory, which was actually thought also to law students in criminology class, at least when I was in law school. According to which vandalism, antisocial behavior and disorder can create an urban environment which encourages further crime and disorder. Yeah, that's, that's a very interesting question. So first, um, I would say many scholars in the field of urban studies and urban planning kind of dispute the veracity of the broken window theory. And from a researcher's perspective, that's because from, a, I mean, the methodology behind this study is extremely difficult to reproduce, right? Um, because we're dealing with actual, you know, social conditions where we are expecting people to commit crimes. Um, but just to answer your question, I would say, yes, urban planning can prevent crime, but not necessarily in the way that we think it can, not necessarily with like making gated communities and lighting up streets and stuff like this. I think urban planning can actually um, prevent crime. And that actually we know by increasing economic vitality, uh, increasing life quality, increasing success to school. And these are outcomes of a good urban planning and urban design strategies. And all of these factors can in fact um, prevent crime. And this also we have studies in uh, you know, uh, sociology that can show this. Um, 
And I think the crime that it prevents, or actually it can prevent crime in a more in a more lasting way and with better and with better means than what we tend to enforce today, which is stuff like predictive policy, uh, predictive policing, or again, face recognition th uh, technology. So yeah, I would say that you know, urban planning can help create um, more aspirations for people and can help them gain the capacities to reach these aspirations and that can actually prevent crime, right? Um, because crime at the end is just some kind of misplaced energy. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, there is a lot of new scientific proof in behavioral and sociological studies for that, that we people in general, we, we intuitively adapt to our environment and start to unconsciously behave as our environment nudges us to behave. And it's, it's not only that the environment can prevent us from something happening, but it can also promote us to do something that we are connected to, to the places where we are. And, and in, it can encourage also like good kind of behavior. But um, considering that we, we, there seems to be quite a lot of knowledge about this um, also in, in urban design, why, why there seems to be so little discussion about how to promote justice and harmony in society by designing the public place? Why do you think that is so? Or at well, least I haven't heard of such discussion. Maybe yeah. I'm just not following the right <laughs> platforms. <laughs> Actually, there's a lot of discussion right now on specifically this topic, of course, you know, in mm -hmm. our discipline, um, but maybe they haven't been made mainstream yet, or it ha hasn't been really kind of like diffused within like a general public yet. Um, so for me, it's not just a matter of adapting to an, our environment. We have to begin to understand that we are the environment. Yeah. And um, again, you know, most, the most influential factor in human behavior is not building or places, is actually other people. Yeah. So urban planning and urban design can work on this by providing some form of contact or interaction with other humans. And you know, I think this year, many of us have finally understood what it means not to have social contacts or to reduce <laughs> these contacts to a very few people like, you know, closest friends and family members. But as humans, we actually need more than this. We need strangers, we need acquaintances, we need, need these small, weak relationships that make up the everyday life. And they can be clients uh, to a restaurant, they can be bus drivers, um, you know, but these people are there, They're, they are our environment, you know, and they, they are having a huge effect on us and us on them. And, you know, humans, we can live in deserts uh, with almost nothing but sand or snow and some water and some food, right? But turns out that we cannot live without other humans. Yeah. I, I really, I need to write down that, that what you just said about that the environment is actually the other people and it's a social social reality and social environment is what actually nudges us to to make choices like we can have a beautiful park but if there's no one there maybe we don't want to go there either or um if there's you know i think maybe restaurants are very 
famous for using this um, idea of the, if you see that there are few people's people are sitting next to the window at the table, then that might be a good restaurant. Maybe we should go there too. This is interesting. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And this is eye-opening because some of the things are really familiar to me, but then they are something that I would never actually think about and try to put them in words. So if we talk a bit about designing these spaces of law, I think the idea of promoting justice by urban planning and designing public space may be a bit unfamiliar to many. How is it possible to affect policy through urban design? What kind of practical case examples could you share with us, Shin? So I think it all depends on how you define justice, right? Um, or policies. Um, you know, in a sense, modern justice, at least since the 1960s, 1970s, has focused mainly on, on the idea of fairness, I think, as a way to address, you know, how we should secure a good distribution of, uh, of goods in society, right? And in this context, urban designers uh, like to question, as I said earlier, right, the notion of what we call spatial justice, right? The justice of space, uh, which entails that distribution should take into account how space will produce forms of inequalities that can be considered as just, you know, that we are all equal, but because of our location, we might not have access to the same services and the same uh, resources, right? So when you develop an area of a city uh, through a public space system, for example, Urban designers must take into account how their project would, will affect the existing population, the local population, but also how it will attract new population, right? Newcomers. And how this project, which uses the city's money, might also deprive people in other neighborhoods from the similar investments. And for example, when, uh, when we conceive a, you know, a system of public space, like a series of parks or a series of squares, um, we need to compose with the local communities and make sure that everybody is welcome in using those spaces. And this means making sure that our design integrates, you know, benches and shade and playgrounds and per performance space, gathering space, but also spaces where people feel they can be more quiet or isolated. And of course, um, we also have to take into account, you know, the community's um, demands regarding safety and security, right? Um, and I think more designers now criticize, you know, these, these apparatuses that were made to limit usage of public space by homeless people or by teens, for example, which were like a big thing in the 90s and 80s, uh, where homelessness was a bigger problem in city centers. And I would say that, you know, public space should basically accommodate everyone equally, one way or another, regardless of uh, your social economical status or your age. And each and every one uh, of us is actually entitled to accessing public space equally. Um, of course, you know, there's always a certain latitude between what policies are asking from us and you know, the application that we make of them. And many urban designers take advantage of this, you know, this latitude in order to create cities that are more inclusive than what policymakers would like. But unfortunately, um, others do the opposite. 
when we think of spaces of law or buildings where where justice is supposed to happen, I think we all think of courthouses. And after Googling the pictures of courthouses around the world, you you get kind of images of buildings that just make you feel small and humble instead of being empowered to, to receive justice. And for example, the District Court of Helsinki in Finland, um, which is a great, beautiful building representing a very peculiar arch- architecture from the 1940s. It's, it's located in an old alcohol factory, actually. And it's a massive brick building with tiny, tiny windows and long corridors. And even though I think it has a really um, cool history um, to be a courthouse, um, but it also reminds me a bit of a jailhouse. And, and it kind of gives creeps when you, you go there. And, and I, well, I have some, a little experience from litigating there. And I always felt a bit of like, okay, they're also going to judge me, <laughs> even I'm just representing someone else there. Um, do you think that this can be a problem, that the uh, look and the general feeling that buildings, courthouses give to us if, if we want to promote open, accessible and equal societies? Does it matter what the courthouses look like, in your opinion, Shen? Well, um, historically, I think that the, you know, the, the judiciary has been able to conduct its activities within, you know, a certain decorum, right? So the robes and at least in certain countries, right, there's robes and perukes and ties and suits. uh, And all of these are part of this decorum, of course, right? And um, from an urban design perspective, courthouses, you know, they're not just located anywhere. You don't enter them by some dark alley, you know, they're usually quite central. and they made so that to show the legitimacy of the judiciary system. And I think this is something um, that is somehow useful and could be maintained, right? Especially right now with you know, the rise of extreme populism, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's also because courthouse, courthouses play an important role in society as part of government. And then from an architectural perspective, I would say that, you know, Buildings, they don't necessarily come with like a meaning, you know, we assign meaning to them. So the way that you look at Helsinki's district courthouse is associated with its function. And actually, I didn't know it was a a factory before. And that's funny. (laughs) If it had been, if it had remained a factory or if it was a school or, you know, an apartment building, you probably wouldn't look at it the same way that you do now, right? Mm, True. So this said, um, of course, you know, some design play with this, you know, knowing that most people share cultural codes associated with architecture and a building that is designed like a dollhouse might not look as serious as one that is designed like a Greek temple, which is basically yeah. <laughs> the de facto design for uh, in Western countries. Yeah. Um, but that's also what makes these design interesting. They show that despite our differences as individuals, we share a lot of cultural codes. Mm. And in fact, I believe that the, in the case of Helsinki, um, you know, the, the, the courthouse was probably designed in a way that um, to show that the judiciary was 
and civil service rather than an authority. Yeah. Uh, and that people were to be treated equally, right? Uh, by civil servants. And the design of the courthouse itself is clearly in a position with the traditional neo-modern courthouse like the US Supreme Court or the Canadian Supreme Court or the Swiss Federal Tribunal, uh, which were all intended to look like, you know, God-like role of justice into society. Yeah, that's really, I, I didn't even think of that before that actually that building could be anything else and maybe it didn't, like the meaning only came afterwards when we said that, okay, this is now a courthouse and that's what gives people creeps, not, not the building necessarily itself. It's like how the brain associates things together. And, and I was just got me thinking, okay, if the first courthouse ever, if we, if it looked more like a dollhouse, like, <laughs> like you said, maybe we, we would think uh, we would uh, associate the same feelings to, to dollhouses. <laughs> the images of, of typical courthouses could also be totally different if we had a different kind of idea how courthouses work. So Yeah. Um, well, we recently learned that there is something called the Darth Vader family courthouse. One of our previous guests mentioned that. And they said that this um, there's this podcast, 99% Invisible Podcast, and they also had an episode where they were discussing this issue of badly designed courthouses. And they called the former design of the New York Family Court in Manhattan as a Darth Vader family courthouse. And when you Google the picture, you really can't disagree. And in that particular podcast episode, they pointed out that the space where people have to face difficult and stressful issues should somehow try to mitigate those experiences. Do you think that architecture can make people feel miserable and thus affect their behavior, such as how to present oneself at court? Could we come up with ideas of how to make people feel less stressful by design? What might bring good feng shui to a courthouse? <laughs> Talks over bad design is a very interesting topic. And I don't know if there's actually research about this, but you know, I think that there should be at some point. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I've not listened to the podcast itself, right? But I've seen the building you talk about. And of course, I would say, I mean, in a sense, I would disagree. <laughs> so actually, I, I, I do think it, it looks a lot like Darth Vader's helmet, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's purely formal in a sense, right? Uh, of course, you know, the building is not a helmet, right? It's a system of space, you know? And again, the people... Um, people project their own cultural codes onto it. And of course, these codes, these codes they evolve through time with, and actually quite rapidly. Um, there are techniques that we know to make certain and space, that space um, feel more appeasing. But again, this is mostly linked to cultural codes. If, for example, a courthouse or if courthouses were designed as spas and spas as courthouses, people would feel better in spa still, right? Uh, because we associate the design with the function it has. And 
the, the experience and activities that uh, we know it has as well. But if we have a cultural code related to how, how courthouses should look, I think we can all maybe picture how a courthouse should look from the inside. And knowing that, that it can also, like we're in, in connected to how people behave there and how maybe the environment and, and the decoration there nudges us to, to behave and to feel, be kind of quiet and behave nicely and, and orderly. But if it can also stress people, I was just thinking that if we all know all this, then why shouldn't we try to mitigate those experiences to be more like we could maybe have like room for for people who who need to like um, build themselves up before before the proceeding and nursing rooms for moms who who, who need to take their babies with them or or something like that to make it more humane and maybe have more plants inside. I'm just thinking like, if we have, like, can these cultural codes also work, work in a way that it like uh, stops us from doing something? It's counterproductive that we have certain expectations, but actually it can make us behave in a way that can do something negative to us. Can we change the expectations by design? Like, okay, suddenly we have colorful walls and maybe some cartoons <laughs> painted for kids who, well, usually kids don't have to go to court, luckily, but <laughs> but something else. I was just thinking that, is it, could we redesign courthouses to be something totally different? Well, in a sense, I think this is exactly what people try to do, to do with the Darth Vader courthouse and the... Mm -hmm. uh, the Helsinki courthouse as well, right? Yeah. So again, um, if you design a courthouse like a Greek temple, and that's basically what Donald Trump was asking for in one of his <laughs> last uh, presidential uh, order, I think, um, people won't ask questions. You know, most people will be, yeah. yeah, okay, fine. You know, it's 2021, but still we are building a Greek temple in the middle of the city. Fine, it's a courthouse, right? Um, but then if you try to do something different, people, they raise questions like, why does it look like this? Why does it look <laughs> like that? You know, why is it, why does it, doesn't have like columns or, you know, of course, then we can adapt courthouse, um, not design, but um, let's say um, activities in terms of, you know, we have a, a nursing space, we have a mm -hmm. space for conciliation, we have a space for this. So we, we dedicate new forms of space, we create new forms of space, right? But this is really independent from uh, from the design itself, in a sense, right? Um, like if you wanted to create a legal negotiation room, uh, you know, like a kid's playroom, for, for example, that'd be great for a few decades. But you know, after a few, a few after a few decades, people would start fearing a kids' room because mm -hmm. they would remind them of negotiation negotiation rooms in courthouses. Yeah. And in thinking of that, I think. Uh, many law firms kind of know this game of how to make people feel comfortable in their premises when when dealing with uh, stressful legal issues. I think um, many law firms, especially those where I've been to, they usually have this like um, launch 
space where they serve you some chocolate and, and coffee and where you can relax for a while before the meeting. And um, I was just thinking that can the space design be sometimes even too nice? Like, like you said that if we start having legal negotiations in a kid's playroom, can it also be counterproductive? In, and at some point we think, okay, why do I feel so anxious in the middle of toys and, and colors and what kind of associations can, can then be, be brought up? So that's a very that's a very good question actually. And um, again, there's some research on this um, on cognition, spatial cognition, and how we relate to certain types of activities um, in the process of doing other activities. For example, uh, we know that for when we discuss, when we think, when we negotiate, it's nice to play with something, you know, to interact with something. And I think you know, in, in today's society, we understand that you know, a negotiation process is not just two parties talking of abstract, you know, ideas, right? It's bodies engaging. Mm. And using designs like, you know, a kid's playroom or a lounge or spaces that you associate with um, more pleasing experience can also enhance um the you know negotiation for example right or the discussion you're having with your lawyer but this makes sense as long as you you maintain this association with this other space mm. right and you mentioned the lounge and that's interesting because you know what is a lounge right it's like a space you go to to enjoy yourself to have a drink or to have a coffee to meet with friends um so as the, as society evolves and has as society creates these new kinds of space uh, we can always try to integrate them into the legal process or into the courthouses, right? As a way to uh, ease the whole um, process. But we have to continuously update these spaces because again, what we think today is relaxing is not exactly what we will think is relaxing in like 20 or 50 years, right? Yeah. So we could say that, okay, if, if we like something now, if something calms us down and we think some design choices to be um, good for the people, we should apply it now and then reflect and see what we think of it in 10 years. Have the, if the situation has changed and it doesn't work anymore, we design needs to be as it is, I think, for very natural design to be like in the pro in the progress all the time, and it needs to develop. And we, it's one of the it's the basics of design philosophy. I think that you need to constantly change if something doesn't work. So it, the same goes with the courthouses, maybe, and with the legal space. That if it doesn't uh, fulfill, then we need to study what what makes it such that doesn't work anymore and right but i yeah. think on this, there's two options either you can you know change it frequently or you know once in a while to adapt it to new realities and the other approach is what we described earlier right uh, opposing the sorry opposing the elzinki courthouse mm -hmm. to uh the u.s supreme court right when you have a design that people expect like a greek temple people feel comfortable because they know exactly what 
they are into and they're going through, right? They're not, you know, surprised by anything. Mm -hmm. And it's also sometimes surprise can be good, right? But surprise can also create a bit more stress for certain people. So maybe step by step, you start bringing plants into a courthouse so people get used to them. <laughs> yeah. But that was a good point that if the courthouse itself surprises the person, that might be stressful too. I mean, going to court doesn't happen every day with normal people. So they might be stressed anyways. If we talk about uh, the future of justice by urban design, um, in business and private housing, people always say that it's only about location, location, location. Where your premises are located affects both your success in business and well-being in private life. And I think the same principle clearly can apply to public government buildings and courthouses. But on the other hand, in the era of digitalization, it seems, however, that we are shifting more and more to communicating online and physical spaces of human contact are becoming less necessary. Do you think this might be a question we need to address in the future in urban designing? What if instead of massive Greek looking court <laughs> buildings, we have smaller movable pop-up courts or other more diverse and functional courtrooms closer to people. I mean, it is also possible today, at least in international human rights cases, that the proceedings travel to the scene of the case. There's this example that uh, this disputing is happening in Tampere, Finland, but they traveled to Gambia, I think, or Nigeria, just to be where it happened. I mean, th that's a very, very good question because this is exactly where we see how uh, design space and uh, the judiciary are interacting, right? And how it can create better condition uh, to exercise law um, in different contexts. And it reminds me a bit of the Twin Peaks series by David Lynch. I don't know if you saw it, but... Uh, yeah. <laughs> At some point, there's a judge coming into town. He sets his tribunal into the local bar, and um, you know he still sits on his pedestal, and it looks still like a you know a courthouse kind of, or the layout of the bar is made up to look like a courthouse. Um, and having moving judiciary is actually quite common in northern Canada because of the geography uh, of different places that we have here and the communities also that live uh, in northern part of the country, especially Aboriginal communities, which have been socially and culturally secluded for, for a very long time. But we shouldn't forget that, you know, courthouses is not just a judge and a few clerks, right? It's also like an entire institution. It's hundreds, if not like thousands of workers working, you know, continuously on, on these different, you know, on different cases. And you can't really expect all of these people to be in, in a constant moving circus, let's say. Um, from an environmental perspective, you know, locating courthouses or at least, you know, their staff in central locations is, you know, what's most efficient because that's, that's also where, you know, public transit is or you can walk to work and, and so on and so on. And more cities and downtown locations are focusing on um, walkability and, uh, you know, transit by bicycle, for example. And I think that ironically, you know, the, pan the pandemic showed us that 
Um, to the contrary, location is becoming more important than ever. And even if we deal with you know, more and more telecommunication like Zoom or Teams and so on, right? Um, if it wasn't, if location wasn't that important, I think that the whole year would have been kind of fine for most of us, but it wasn't, it was actually horrible. And that's because, that's because um, that we like it or not, we still need to move. We still need to go to places. We still need to meet people and to see people physically. Yeah, good points. And I think the whole, I mean, it's easy to think that it is just only nowadays that we're talking about location. But then I remember that back in the legal, well, back in the law school, I took a course in legal history. And there I learned that at least in Sweden and Finland, um, people used to go to these disputing rocks that were basically out of nowhere. And I was just wondering like how ever they got the idea to do resolution disputing like in the middle of nowhere where everybody has to travel well back in the day for days. That's crazy. But at the same time, these rocks, I mean, as you said, right, they're they're in the middle of nowhere, but we still go to them, right? They're still yeah. located. They're not just moving places. I think they had some, and perhaps, right, perhaps some kind of symbolic or religious meaning. And that's why, you know, um, decision like legal decisions were taking at these locations rather than in the village or anywhere else. Exactly, yeah. This got me to think that maybe it's actually, well, when, when we're thinking at from the point of view of functionality, we maybe think that, okay, the courthouse should be close to the place where people live. But if we, like Hannah said, that usually going to the court is, is a once in a lifetime experience for people. And, and maybe it serves something, something very important in us that, we need to go somewhere, we, we need to travel there. Like it's a space outside of our normal circles. And maybe it also has this kind of a symbolic meaning that we go into the forest, like we, we did in, in, the, <laughs> in the, back in the history, uh, our, we surround ourselves uh, closer to rock and we are like in a different space like which is there's some kind of maybe an at least an illusion of objectivity that okay now we gather here and we we are we're not getting distracted by something else now it's just what happened and now we need to solve this conflict or resolve the issue between these people and we kind of stop the moment there and our try to be really present and and reflect and decide wisely. So maybe it could also have this kind of meaning that maybe it's not a bad thing that we need to like move our bodies from from our normal surroundings to somewhere else and then experience this holy feeling of justice, whatever. (laughs) I don't know. But I haven't I hadn't thought of that before. So maybe it's not a, a bad thing. Then we go to a temple. (laughs) Almost like a pilgrimage, right? You walk towards this place, which has, you know, social and symbolic meaning to you, but also to the others, right? Yeah. Yeah, totally. This discussion totally changed my view of of these Greek temples. Now I'm like, oh, that is so noble and (laughs) wonderful that we have these. First, I thought, okay, it's it's so boring. boring. (laughs) 
Yeah. Hmm. Um, it's been a really good conversation with you, Shin. Um, to summarize a bit our discussion, why is it important to pay attention to the design of our public spaces when discussing justice or social justice or democracy? Well, space is, is whatever we make of it, right? And uh, public space is a reflection of society. So if our society aspires for justice, fairness, and equity, then so should public space, or sh so should we see this in public space as well, right? Um, and urban design can, in a sense, help us guaranteeing that those aspirations translate into actual situation and actual experiences, and just not ideals, but also you know, everyday life experiences. Okay, Shane, I think that as an urban designer, you get to look at law and justice from a really special point of view. What has this work as an urban designer taught to you about fairness in society? An easy one to the end. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I thought it, it taught me two things, I'd say. Um, first, that it's not as simplistic as it may seem, right? And that justice, like um, just like urban design, needs to, you know, it needs constant care and reassessment and reevaluation and modification and so on. And second, it taught me that just like urban design, justice can be improved by those who take care of it or those who take who care about it. And that if we work together as a society and we work onto justice, just the way that we work onto public space and urban design, we can make it closer to what we want it to be, just like, you know, in a city. Yeah. Thank you, Shin, for joining us. It was really inspiring to talk to you. And like I said, I've learned new things from this discussion. Well, thank you a lot, Nina <laughs> and Hannah. Thank you for being our guest. I think this really was a legal talk out of the box. Yeah. <laughs> and thank you for listening to the Legal Design Podcast. For more information about us, please visit legaldesignpodcast.com. You can also follow us on our social media accounts on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. 